This is a HeadGum Podcast. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Inside Voices. I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. My guest today is Glenn Weldon. So this is season two of Inside Voices, which, yes, our voices need to be inside now more than ever, etc., etc. The next 12 episodes have been recorded post-pandemic, except... For today's episode, which was which was recorded in a different time, in a different place, in what feels like a different universe now. It was March 8th, 2020, that I sat down and had a conversation in Washington, D.C. with Glenn Weldon. Glenn Weldon is a critic, an author, a writer, and a host from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, a roundtable chat show about contemporary pop culture, which he hosts alongside Linda Holmes and Stephen Thompson. And now I need to tell you about the sound quality of this episode, because I kind of thought it was a mess. We recorded this on the road in Washington, D.C., because... Ironically, I wanted to have guests on in person, not over the phone. Haha. <laughs> and the nature of recording on the road is that we don't use our own studios. We book studios that we find. And we found what we thought would be a soundproof room that could not have been less soundproof or less isolated. Our voices are clear and resonant on mic, but what you'll hear is a significant amount of bleed from our noisy surroundings. And initially, I was so disappointed by this because vocal tracks that are married to any outside sound are much more difficult to edit. And even more so, I was afraid that the show wouldn't be as immersive if you, the listener, were distracted by a barrage of outside nonsense. I wasn't sure if it was even decent enough to be released. But in the intervening month upon re-listening, that technical annoyance has become comforting. All the busyness, the mundane cacophony just off mic. All the busyness, the mundane cacophony just off mic. You can hear laughter, sirens, loud music, forks clanking on plates, baristas using their steam wands for lattes. You can hear life. And it's a reminder that we'll hear life again soon enough. And our daily frustrations will concern the overabundance of it, not the tragic loss of it. But for now, here's Glenn Weldon naming the episode. I well today scratchy because I have a bit of a cold. I swear to God, it's just a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I would say Glenn Weldon has a nerdy voice. I am a nerd, and nerds tend to overpronounce our R's for reasons that I do not quite understand. <laughs> um, I think it has something to do with the fact that we're rule followers, right? So there's an R in a word. You pronounce the hell out of it. A nerdy voice. You delivered exactly the kind of... I know you're a nerd mm-hmm. because you're a rule follower and you've heard the show before. I have. And you know exactly the soundbite I need. Like, oh, it needs to be one voice. It needs to go in the episode title. Yep. You know, exactly what I've it needs to be. done my research. Yes. How did your voice change over time, do you feel like? Oh, I have no, I have no idea. Uh, I, I guess... I mean, people always said, oh, you have a good voice for radio. You should be on radio. And, and mm. you know, that's like... Uh, it's, it's like baldness. <laughs> it's just this thing that you're born with and uh, you can't really do anything with. I mean, if I tried to modulate it, it would sound affected. So this is just, yeah, this is just I, I've had this voice since I was like 13. So Truly? Yeah. Like even in terms of like pitch and stuff, you were like dropping a little lower before the sure, other voice? Sure. I think uh, uh, you know, there's, I used to do little... Uh, on cassette recorders, little shows, you know, for my friends and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and yeah, I, if you listen to them today, it's basically the same voice, except um, even nerdier, I think. Do you have any of these recordings? Mm, I'm going to say no. 
I'm going to say here publicly, no, you I have don't. They have been destroyed no. in a fire. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, well, okay, paint a picture for me, given that we can't listen to these ourselves. Like, what were the kind of things you were doing with the tape recorder and making the shows? Oh, just have a friend over and then pretend that we're doing a newscast. Mm-hmm. Or have a friend over and pretend that we're, like, uh, doing Saturday Night Live. It's, it's, you know, it's the basic go-to nerd sound people thing. And back then, did it feel like infinitely more magical than it is now where it's like a voice memo app on your iPhone yeah and like you can listen back to it in 30 seconds of like I had to buy tape I have to record over something else this is like precious real estate that I'm using for all this stuff yeah I mean the logistics of it were you had to press record and play at the same time and you had to uh, cut out the little tab on the cassette so to make sure that this is <laughs> worth keeping mm-hmm. this is forever like I'm never gonna tape over this piece of business yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. man i need to i do have some similar tape recordings of me really there's one interview that i did when i was i must have been 10 or 11 years old Mm -hmm. that i think we only have uh saved because it wasn't on a tape recorder this was like 2001 2002 so i believe it was a, a mini disc oh a mini disc so for people listening it was like a flash in the it was kind of the laser disc as far as like audio formats go right where it was uh it it looked essentially like a compact disc but maybe like a quarter of the size Mm -hmm. or half of the size and you'd have these little recorders and and they'd be good for like field interviews or talking to people for radio stuff so who were you interviewing i was interviewing katie perry oh hey (laughs) wow the age for teen beat magazine what were you doing well here's the thing is she was at the time Katie Hudson. Uh-huh. She was a oh, Christian this, this recording Christian. artist. This is the thing. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. So back. she was touring with uh, an, uh, a more famous at the time Christian band. I don't believe that's the case now <laughs> in terms of comparing their two careers. And uh, a friend of mine worked at the radio station mm-hmm. and he was getting the bigger band. He's like, I'll interview them. This Katie Hudson girl, she's really nice. I've met her before. If you want to interview her, she'll be really nice to you, blah, blah, blah. And so he kind of like tossed me that one. That's cool. Out of all the people. And so there does exist like uh, a tape. And it does exist. So maybe I have to play it now on this episode. So Katie, tell us about your upcoming album. Hi. Hey, uh, my album comes out uh, March 6th on Red Hill Records. I'm very excited. I'm like, ah, you know. And it sounds a little bit, it's like a modern pop rock. Yeah, I guess. Something like that. Are you excited to be touring with Phil Joel? Um, you know, I, I kind of had to have a, a, a bag, a barf bag, because I was so excited. I'm kidding. Um, no, I'm really excited, and I, I absolutely have grown up listening to him and from the Newsboys, and I love Vienna, and I love Earthsuit so much, and LaRue, woo! Do you want to make any closing comments? Um, no, I just, I guess, I just... Hope you like the music, and I hope you have, like, the best time here. So, thanks, Kevin, so much. Were you nervous? Yes, of course. Well, the thing, too, is, like, even back then, and she was, like, a 15 or 16-year-old girl, but, like, you know, we had a crush on her, too. Sure. And so even, like, being around in the same space, it was, like, it wasn't even so much, like, look at the celebrity or look at the singer. It's like, oh, that's Katie Hudson. She played here a couple months ago and like Jordan talked to her for X, Y, Z amount of time. And and she remembers this and blah, blah, blah. So that was part of the news too. I'm picturing a sort of Anakin Padme vibe where like there's just, there's a tension there that shouldn't be there. Maybe (laughs) fully. Yeah, no. And that was right around the time of that movie too. So that was very, very apropos. So did you ever, like, did you do singing stuff when you were growing up? No, 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 no. You didn't no, ever no, want no. to? Never. You can't carry a tune at can't all? Can't carry a tune, nope, nope. Never, never tried, never will. Can't act, can't do any of that stuff. Nope, nope, nope. What I did in high school was to try to be as invisible as possible and yet be a special little smarty pants was I uh, was in the newspaper. I did newspapers. You know, that got my writing out and, and I could communicate to the world through that. But I was, my, my goal through high school was to just be invisible. Yeah, well, what were you trying to communicate in high school? Oh, you know, I was nothing much. It was just uh, trying to be remotely funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was a, a wacky instance where I, in a column uh, I, I compared the library's new uh, borrowing practices to a concentration camp. That mm. went over well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that, was, that was big fun. That was, uh, that was awful. <laughs> hey, sometimes Glenn Weldon pushes boundaries That's and right. sometimes he misses. Living on the edge. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a, there. We had a staff counselor, right? There, we had an editor, like, and that guy was like, "Yep, sure, Nazis." Checks out. Checks out. Checks out. Checks, checks out. out. 
was this you almost like trying to provide value for yourself to other people of like, well, I can be a utility in this sense. I can be funny or I can make you laugh. And if you want to rely on me for that kind of thing, maybe I'm your guy. Uh, it was me trying not to do sports uh, or, or any other kind of school spirit related activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Because my, my mom worked at the school. Uh, she was uh, the athletic secretary and then she was the assistant to the, the secretary to the principal. And she was big friends with all the jocks, the very people who were tormenting me daily. So uh, and she was just she would just talk about them so glowingly over dinner. And I would seethe uh, because she wanted me to go out for sports. I mean, both my parents were jocks, and, and uh, yeah. So well, I this didn't, I didn't know as a part oh, of the story. Oh God! Uh, so I kind of swung the other way as far as possible. So it's like a comfy hiding space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, they, they didn't didn't really care about the writing stuff so much. Mm-hmm. They just wanted me to be participating. It was very important that I participate. Can you tell me like what the idea of of quote-unquote nerd culture of being a nerd because you were someone who was like into comic books and probably from as young as you can remember mm-hmm. and into this sort of culture but like what was it representative of at that time because now it's like supplanted everything as like oh yeah that's like the mainstream most popular thing in the world yeah but when it was actually like not marginalized but just kind of like decentered as like cultural narrative sure what, what, what was that like i mean i grew up at a time when comic shops were grubby dark dank places of just male slobs arguing with each other in the back over the back issues um, over the most dry arcana about whose whose power set could be whose other power set. It's now happening, except it's happening everywhere. And yet that feeling of persecution hasn't gone away. So I think people like me uh, still feel that, well, uh, wrongly, that uh, what they love is is somehow <laughs> rare or special when now it's just the lingua franca. It's basically sports. Yeah. But that could feel like, a, you know, that might even be, to bring it back to, like, the subject of the show, allegedly, kind of what podcasters feel like they're sure. going through in terms of people showing up to the medium and recognizing commercial value of course. in it and seeing everyone kind of flood the market in that sense so maybe that's what like like comic book culture even specifically what that's been going through the last couple decades the through line through all nerd culture is this sense of of being affronted all the time of saying if you don't love what i love in exactly the same way and for precisely the same reasons that i do you're doing it wrong that's Mm -hmm. that's the that that's it's it's your you feel like your back's against the wall, even if it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this is where all the toxicity of, of nerd culture comes from. It's where the toxicity of culture comes from. This feeling of being persecuted when you are not being remotely persecuted at all. Yeah, and kind of, uh, and I wonder too if, like, even back then, it sort of traded on that, like, we're not like the other people. We're like, you know, in the way that like punk rock would mm-hmm. in the nineteen seventies. Absolutely. If that was even like a commercial pivot point of like how to sell that sort of thing of like, come be strange with us in understanding that and making it like a capitalistic move in that way. I think a part of adolescence is defining yourself by what you're against. And uh, I think that has a very deep mental psychological power that you never can get rid of. So you say, I'm not my parents. I'm not my brother. I'm not my friends. I like this thing. And only I like this thing. And then with the internet, you realize, oh, there's millions of people who like the same thing. But that doesn't take that feeling of specialness away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just uh, you, you find them in sufficient numbers to terrorize the rest of the world. Yeah, no, that's exactly the verbiage you want yep. <laughs> to terrorize the rest of the mm-hmm. world. So, like, with culture writing, it did start as an escape hatch from an alternative thing that you did not want to do with, like, athletics and sports. But, sure. like, when did it become something where it's like, oh, there is a substantive, like, trajectory that I want to have with this or something that I personally want to, like, put out in the world. Right. Well, I, I was writing short stories for a while um, after uh, college, and then I, I went uh, to a workshop to to do that for two years. And then I just started um, uh, just temping and, and doing odd jobs around the place while I continued to send out short stories, and I got some published, some didn't. But my friend uh, Trey Graham, who, who worked at NPR, was also working at the Washington City Paper, which is the local alt-weekly here in D.C., mm-hmm. and he said, you should do some theater criticism uh, for me, because I was also sending out these stupid joke-filled emails, mass emails to friends about stupid things. This was just like a newsletter of your own making that you would send to friends? This is before newsletters, yeah. This is just like just... just The Weldon Weekly? Uh, it didn't have a name. It was just... I was like there was this uh, abysmal show uh, called Boy Meets Boy which was like a reality show about uh, gay 
people and straight guys trying to pretend to be gay. It was awful. Mm. And so I would send out weekly basically recaps of the show to people who did not remotely care about the show, but uh, uh, Trey did. And so he uh, asked me that, to, to try some theater criticism. I didn't know that much about theater, and I was determined I didn't want to do any nonfiction stuff. I just wanted to be a fiction guy. But I started doing that, and uh, it was fun. And that led to getting a regular gig on uh, NPR's Monkey C Blog. Remember blogs, Kevin? Monkey C Blog. This was, yeah, this predated Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. And so that was like NPR's pop culture blog hosted, ran by Linda Holmes. Uh, she didn't know who the hell I was, but Trey did. Trey was the movie editor uh, for Digital at the time. And he said, you should think about uh, doing something. Like, this guy likes comics. Why, why, do, why doesn't he do a weekly like comics column, basically, for mm-hmm. the NPR pop culture. And nobody was paying attention to the NPR politics, uh, the NPR pop culture stuff at all. It was, just wasn't in the ether there. It wasn't how the organization was thinking. They weren't paying that much attention to digital, really. Um, because they're a radio. What <laughs> a radio. year was this? This was 2009, 2010, okay. somewhere in there. Not super long ago. Not super long ago. Uh, so I started doing that. That got some attention. That was fun to do. And that led to... Um, to Linda and Stephen Thompson sitting around and saying, we should just try one of those, you heard of this podcast thing? Let's try a podcast. Mm -hmm. And it was not done in the way that has now uh, become NPR procedure, where there are meetings on top of meetings on top of meetings, and we assess the audience, and we assess, like, the outreach, and we assess, like, you know, who who is a show for, Mm -hmm. who should be on the show, like, none of that. It was just basically an idea on uh, Stephen's couch. And say, so let, yeah, let's get Trey, and let's get uh, this guy Glenn, who writes for this column for me. And it was done. Uh, I was had a nine to five job at, uh, elsewhere at the time, and so I would come over like at six thirty at the end of the day, and we tape, you know, just in a, an empty studio. And our producer Mike Katzif was sitting there in the studio with us, kind of saying, telling us when we were getting boring. You know, we had we had good editing even from the jump. I think that kind of mm. uh, helped a lot. Uh, and uh, it was this shapeless, amorphous thing that we just started putting out. And uh, you know, this is not the way we would have done it today. I don't think we would have approached it by saying, you know, who needs to be heard from more are white middle-aged people. I think that's, that. we're not hitting that niche as, as NPR. I don't think that's who we're, uh, and so as the show grew and we started to uh, have special like uh, categories and like a, we, the format of the show shifted and Trey left, that gave us an opportunity to bring in new voices from within and without NPR mm-hmm. from a lot of different perspectives, which has improved not just the content of the show, but the experience of doing the show because you spend enough time with people and you, your, your sensibilities start to cohere and you need uh, fresh voices. It's just vitally important for that to, for, for them to make the conversation interesting, mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that you're not speeding past your blind spot, that you're taking the time to think of other perspectives and other, because you know, it, it's pop culture. It's people talk about it already. So for them to kind of want to listen to you, you have to bring them something uh, that is not just what they could get from, you know, they're sitting around talking to their friends. You want it to feel like they're sitting around talking to their friends. Portrait of a Lady on Fire begins with a woman named Marianne assigned to paint a woman named Eloise. It's the second half of the 18th century, and the portrait is the best way to present Eloise to a man who might marry her. In writer and director Celine Siamat's film, it's relationships between women that are at the center of the story. A story about art, sex, and navigating limited choices. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. We're talking about the wonderful Portrait of a Lady on Fire today on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. So don't go away. So I want to go back to those like early episodes. Mm. In the big, it started in 2009. 2010, you said? actually. 2010 Podcasted, that the podcast yeah. happened. Like uh, in terms of like the process, like I know now in 2020, what would kind of be the recommended, uh, you know, series of execution for like, oh, you make a few test episodes, yep. maybe a couple listen back to them like what was y'all's process back then in terms of like refining it and working with producers who were like giving you notes on it and making it something that you guys could all be proud of uh well i mean it was just put out there uh, into the feed just by itself um but from the jump we had my cats kind of sitting over the shoulder working in his free time uh as well kind of sitting there and and not doing the you need the npr comma did you know about the npr comma 
No. Okay. Explain the, it to me. The uh, explanatory, the NPR explanatory comma is Batman, and for listeners who don't know, Batman is a strong man who uh, fights crime at night. Uh, blah, 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 blah. That's the explanatory comma, and that is a way to make sure you are hitting everybody. Uh, to make sure that you're, you're not zooping past and, and making it feel insular. So he kept, would, would help us to, as they say in uh, television and, and film, cheat out. So uh, we're talking to you, t- to you, Kevin, but I'm angling my body or my intent, my content, out to a wider group of people. That's the idea. Uh, he was always there and very willing to tell us when we were being boring or too, too in the weeds. That's the problem. That. The, the thing that happens most with the show is we get two in the weeds, and we, and we need a producer. We need somebody with a, a set of ears who is practiced to kind of step back and say, you guys, we're getting better at it, too. But it's always important that we just have somebody to kind of give us a wider context, a wider content. It almost so, sounds like a coach relationship with the team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It, 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 it is somebody who is pushing back. It, it, and pushing back lovingly and pushing back, you know, mm. great. But it's, it's about us having complete trust that we are not the final arbiters of what stays in and what goes out. Mm-hmm. And it's about making the show better and making us seem more intelligent. Because mm-hmm. if we, it's not just about getting rid of lip smacks and ums and ahs, though that happens and it is hugely important. It's also getting rid of like uh, just wrong turns and doing fact checks. We didn't do any fact checks at the, at the beginning of the, of the show because we just, we had no real idea it was ever going to be a thing. It was just something we were doing. It was a project and, you know, projects at NPR rise and fall all the time. And we had no idea this was going to be a thing. Stuff would go out there with that or just us expressing opinions without actually kind of checking if we got the date right. Uh, that it doesn't happen anymore, mm. uh, thankfully, because we're getting more resources to and more time. And, and Jess isn't the sole producer of the show anymore. Mike is back. And so a lot of NPR podcasts have three or four producers. We've always had just the one. Uh, and uh, that that means it's a lot of work for our producer because they're also working as an editor. They're basically are you know doing both jobs, and there's always overlap in those jobs. But uh, it's a lot, and the more time, the more editing you do, the more ruthless you are, the better the show is. Even if it's a roundtable discussion, you know, I, I, there's podcasts out there which are just freeform uh, conversations. You listen to them for that. That intimacy, that feeling of intimacy between these people. Uh, there's a there's a there's a friendly tension. There's humor. That's what it's there for. But if you're trying to convey information and you're trying to uh, hit a, a lot of different perspectives, it just helps to kind of winnow it down as much as possible. Well, this is something I tell people too when. Whenever people ask me about, oh, what do you think the ideal length for a show is? Mm-hmm. I do recommend going shorter. Right. I mean, you know, NPR has data on when people drop off. We have, you know, NPR One. We can kind of see when people stop listening to a podcast or stop listening to a story. And that's useful information, but it cannot drive. Because, again, that's coming at it from a broadcast sensibility, hitting as many people as possible. And podcasts are niche casts. Podcasts are about somebody has to, right now anyway, they still have to seek it out. And that feeling of... Uh, Volition that, that the fact that I've chosen to listen to this. This is not just in the air being you know kind of uh, beamed at me. This is this is something I have sought out. Means that the connection is a little bit deeper, and so that it means that uh, you can go longer. I think, especially if, if you're interesting. <laughs> it yeah. helps. If as long as you're uh, editing it down and you're, you're keeping the good stuff, you know, a lot of the people who are doing podcasts, or at least in the beginning, were coming from radio. Word Balloon is a comic book podcast that I love a lot. It's by this guy, John Suntrist, who did Drive Time Radio in Chicago for years. And those podcasts, those interviews with comics creators can go for two and a half hours because John is convinced that uh, people put on podcasts and just kind of leave them on the background the way they do radio. I don't. I'm sure people do. When I see like a two and a, two and a half hour podcast, even with uh, Tom King, a guy I love, uh, a creator I love, like uh, I'm like, okay, well, this is... This is like six commutes right here. This is, this is a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't walk the dog that often, you know? Yeah, where are you on play speed gate in terms of uh, 1.5x to 2x? This is a big point of discussion right now. Uh, yeah, both uh, Jess and I think Mike uh, edit the show at 1.5. Um, oh. And uh, they're monsters, frankly. They're just <laughs> complete monsters for doing so. Uh, because, I mean, like, I don't want... I, and they say it doesn't affect the pitch, but it, it, it affects the pitch. I can hear... When uh, some uh, I accidentally hit the 1.5 button, and it's just it's 
it feels wrong. I also already speak too fast, so uh, it's uh, it, it's be a nightmare, I think, to listen to myself or anything else. I would never listen to a podcast fast. <laughs> Are you comfortable with the sound of your own voice now? Um, I guess. I mean, it, I, uh, that, I, I still hear the over-enunciated R. I still hear that Kermit kind of... Um, uh, the thing going on right here. I've uh, never thought of Kermit oh, this when is I've all talked I, to you. That's all I ever That's think all of. you hear? That's all I hear. Well, Kermit's a freaking legend anyway. Sure. I mean, invite the comparison all you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, he's, he's, he's not a good manager, you know? Yeah, I understand <laughs> he's that. Yeah. not a really good manager. <laughs> he, he likes an admin skills for yes, sure. He certainly does. <laughs> because some people, even now that I talked on the show, they still dislike their voices yeah yeah i mean i think that's part of the deal though isn't it because you especially if you are especially if you have to edit yourself like i don't have to edit myself so Mm -hmm. i you know i can i can hit the skip button uh if if i'm listening back and i know i'm gonna go off on a little tirade that goes on for too long i can uh just zip right past it Mm -hmm. i hated it when i would used to go on like uh talk of the nation or something like that i knew i had like a little bit on there i would not never listen back to that because it's me talking to um people who call in and I you know I'm not good on the fly I'm not a good um, improv guy I can't I can't I'm good when I have time to think and consider mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things about the doing the show that's that I like is my goal and I think all of our goals is to come into that room having done a lot of thinking but to discover something in that room that we didn't necessarily know we were going to do when we walked into it mm-hmm. there has to be some some uh, we arrive at something, an exchange, uh, somebody says something that sparks something. That's what I think ideally the show should be about. Uh, not about us, but about like the thing we're talking about and finding something that we didn't realize we were going to find uh, when, when, the, when we walked into the room. Yeah, which is just like also what would make a good conversation with a friend of yours, right? Exactly. Where it's like, I basically know what this is going to be, but... I do like the idea of feeling the capacity to be surprised by people even I know really, really well. Sure, sure. And, you know, when I started, I, I was coming at it uh, as a writer, which meant I had prepared little talking points. I had little uh, bullet points that I was going to tick off. And the, I've really, you know, I had a little uh, notebook that I would bring in. And um, What's happened to that notebook now? notebook has now become basically a printout of just some abstract thoughts. Bullet points. Bullet points. Which is funny because when I listen to the show now, and I still do listen regularly, it you sound very, not scripted, but astute and, and pretty intentional in the things that you want to say Beautiful. on the show. Glenn, what did you think of the film? What I really liked about this movie is how unselfconsciously, how confidently it tells its story. And, not for nothing, how blithely, willfully, super hyper-mega-French it is. It it knows itself so well. It knows that if you wanted to parody this film, it is giving you all the tools you need. You would just have to do a scene where these two amazing actresses are just staring at each other, and one (laughs) says something like, your presence is made up of fleeting moments that may lack truths. But they don't speak English. They don't speak English with a French accent, no. You can think of it that way. Or one of them says, have you known love before? Yeah. Pause, 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 stare, 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 pause, pause, pause. Wait, you know, that's the film. Uh, because uh, almost as if, like, you have written out some of it. Is that just a function of the way your mind still works? If yeah. Even if you make a bullet point of, like, liked it, dress, whatever. Like, just, like, bullet points of words so you can still think about it in, in that sense of, like, this sort of line or this sort of sentence or, or right it's it's a basically it'll be an ex, it'll be a series of words if i think uh that series of words works the way it should and mm-hmm. if i if i know if i'm going to stumble over something or uh i'm going to get a date wrong or anything like that but yeah it's not uh i i just uh overthink everything that's why i sound this way <laughs> <laughs> an overthinking voice too yes Let's take a break from Glenn Weldon's nerdy voice, and we'll be right back with more Inside Voices. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Inside Voices. And now, more from Glenn Weldon. We discovered pretty early on, as a lot of podcasters did, that our audience was uh, librarians, uh, archivists, information specialists, and, uh, and teachers, basically. That's... that's uh, <laughs> Uh, very passionate and very, um, very, very kind. Uh, the show was mm, anywhere from 45 minutes to maybe 50 minutes when it started with two subjects, a kind of, this happened this week and here's like an evergreen thought of like, you know, here's people we're pulling for, actors that we want to see more from, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that kind of went on for a good long time. Then Trey left and that caused us to kind of rethink not only the, the, population of the panel, but also the format of the show. And we were getting information from NPR One and other things that shorter would mean more listens. We tape on Mondays and Tuesdays, generally speaking, the the Wednesday episode that goes up, the Wednesday episode, and then the Friday episode, which is the, the longer one. You know, there's a lot of listeners who really miss the old format of the show, because a lot of it was, okay, we're doing a topic of the week, the thing that's new, and they miss the kind of sit around shoot the shit kind of uh, discussion uh, that we do. And, and the format of the show, the way we do the show now doesn't allow us to get into that as much. We were kind of keeping responding to uh, breaking news of the day. But consistently since the beginning uh, people's favorite segment of the show people's favorite thing about the show is what we do at the end which is what's making us happy. On a, on a Friday episode we'll do what's making us happy. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week especially now I have to say what's making us happy this week. Glenn Weldon what's making you happy this week? Uh, keeping on the Chris Elliott tip in 1986 he came out with a television special called Action Family which is at least one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. It pops on and off YouTube uh, with regularity but if you want to read about it, a 2013 article in Vulture by Ramsey S. ESS really captures what it's about. I push back very hard uh, on happy because uh, for me, happy is a high bar. <laughs> it's, it's a loaded word for Glenn Weldon. It's, it's okay. just, it's not, it's not, not my default. Uh, so I push back on that. And, you know, we learned things that, yeah, people say they want to hear more about our lives and our uh, who we are, but uh, that's I. Again, I I don't like talking about myself too damn much. Um, so this is a nightmare for you right now. Um, no, I, I have become inured to to this uh, <laughs> over the years. Over the years, I, I think what's going to happen, and I think I can uh, announce this, is that later on in the year we are going to be uh, going daily. Uh, we have we're hiring more producers. We're going to hire another host, uh, so we can kind of divvy up the the load. And that will, A, allow us to be a little bit more agile, uh, and B, it will uh, allow us to have these episodes, which are just the four of us, the three of us, the two of us, whoever, sitting around having a conversation about something that's evergreen, a topic like that. So, Fully. And, and allow for kind of that looseness that was uh, marked by the show more when it started, exactly. too. Exactly. Because the show, it. as it functions right now, does kind of remind me of a procedural, yeah. or law and order, yeah. where it's like... We're watching them soft cases. Mariska Hargitay's out there. And then, like, slowly over time, maybe like season 16, 17, it's like, oh, Stephen Thompson's talking about his daughter. I, I remember when he talked about yeah. her a, a couple of years ago, or Glenn's talking about his husband, or yeah. Glenn's talking about something happening with her book, or maybe that was a goal that she had a couple of years ago. Now the book's actually come out. Yep. And it's kind of. Uh, rewarding in a way to get those like little drips where some shows are fully predicated on the transparency or the vulnerability of the people involved where it's sure. like it's just that and maybe they talk about stuff they work on or write for professionally but mm-hmm. flipping it the other way around is such an interesting and it's very NPR too in terms yeah. of like the code of style but like it's a very interesting way to um, ingratiate yourself with le- with a listenership sure. because it's almost like um it's almost like a friend you want to get to know more through whatever means possible and people form like long-term relationships with all you guys right. for that reason. One of the big challenges of the show for me, if you are wired like me, is to come up with something that's making you happy every week. Uh, so in the beginning, we would 
I say we. Stephen Thompson would talk about like something from his uh, from his family, like like you know he 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 got a Zaxxon machine. Uh, at some point, there was a come to Jesus meeting where I was like, dude, the idea is for this to be a recommendation engine, right? <laughs> we are trying to get the people who listen. We're trying to offer them things that they can get access to. So we came up with what we now call the Zaxxon rule, which is there can be no, if it's just a you thing, like no. And don't, don't waste everybody's time. <laughs> and just come up with something that other people can take part in. It was a huge step for the show, I think. Because that's another thing that went from it seeming uh, insular. And, you know, uh, you know, there was some feedback very early on in the show that it seemed like we were the cool kids' table. The idea was to invite people in and not kind of feel like we are, you know, just making fun of everything or everybody, which is my default. <laughs> but uh, part of uh, offering so- that little bit of uh, lightness at the end of every Friday episode to send people into the weekend with four things that if they are so inclined they could they could check out for themselves is it has become my favorite part of the show because I I, I, I love feeling of use mm-hmm. <laughs> utile I, I want I want people to take something away from the show as opposed to us just sitting around talking about us what percentage of doing the podcast represents because you work for NPR full-time now yeah what percentage of doing the podcast like represents your workload well uh, with this change it's going to be hundred mm-hmm. percent um, I would say I was doing a lot of uh, writing for the site and editing uh, move reviews for the site and also appearing you know whenever I can on the radio that is probably gonna shift gonna, mm-hmm. I think the show is gonna take up hundred percent of my time how does that make you feel because you did start out in culture writing and you, you're the author of a few books mm-hmm. how does that make you feel about there does seem to be this shift this is almost like uh, Facebook's pivot to video oh, a yeah. couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this feels actually uh, predicated actually on hard data and actually what's happening rather than a, a big corporation lying about it. Mm-hmm. But it feels like there does seem to be this de-emphasis on long reads and article, and those things will always be around. Yeah. But there does seem to be more of an emphasis and shift on, well, people are listening to stuff. Spotify's getting bullish about people listening to XYZ and pushing that stuff, uh, you know, on their commutes. And written word is getting a little bit of the fuzzy and the lollipop with some of that stuff. As, as someone who probably considers himself a writer foremost, yeah. how does that make you feel? You know, I mean, I love doing the show. And uh, I also love writing. And, uh, you know, I'm not, writing's not dead. I mean, I'm still, I'm still going to be writing. And I'm still going to be working on uh, book projects and other projects. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is, we'll, we'll give this thing a shot, right? I mean, this is, we're going to give this the old college try. We're trying mm-hmm. to make NPR's big on, you know, daily habits. Like, trying to make podcast listening a daily habit for for folks and you know with something like the daily and with something like the politics podcast you know you kind of create that habit um and who knows if it'll work for pop culture happy hour but we're gonna give it a shot do you feel like this show has changed like i mean we talked about that in terms of like how you relate to people now are listeners of the show do you feel like the shows change you in other ways that are a, a little more personal or wouldn't be like strictly professional in terms of like how you relate to the world or or view your relationships or anything like that um you know my my husband doesn't listen to the show and that is hugely important to me i mean like not because i'm embarrassed or anything like that but i i, I love having somebody who is not you know i don't want to date me <laughs> i want to date somebody who is very different from me and mission accomplished mm-hmm. uh and so there are he's just not a pop culture guy right so there are these in-depth conversations i have with everybody on the show uh and all the fourth chairs about some specific aspect of pop culture and we talk about our dog when i go home like like that's 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 the, the it's a it's a nice uh break i used to date uh, exclusively people who meta checklist of like they had to know this and this had to be one of their favorite movies and, th- and that that way madness and just uh, boring 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 relationships lie it's mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it, that is a thing I've come to know is uh, I need to be with someone who is not obsessed with the same things I'm obsessed with there's this thing I got and, and I think it's so pervasive in popular culture obviously but the thing about shared taste being uh, necessity or something where it's like if you guys can't align or have some sort of Venn diagram overlap on musical tastes or the shows that you're watching or the things that you know the the media that you're consuming there might be true compatibility issues yeah, but I I, yeah I feel like you get older and it's like well yeah you know what all else is important character <laughs> integrity yep. a person's posture towards the world and exactly. like their general mood mm-hmm. so it's nice to know you you uh, discover that as well yes at some point in your life. It took a while how often do you think about your place in 
culture writing in conversation, and then especially on the show, in the intersectionality with queer identity. It's something that I've like had to think about a lot. Even even in doing a show like this, where like I say I'm trying to platform other people mm-hmm. with different kind of voices and, and perspectives, but even me as a host lacking any intersectionality to speak of is like yeah. cis straight yeah. hetero very white yeah. incredibly white. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> incredibly cis as well but like it's, <laughs> it's something where it's like not in, in like a pc culture's the what's wrong with this country sort of way but just in the sense of like it's hard for me to justify my voice existing and needing space in a larger narrative or conversation more so than a woman's, a queer person's, a trans person's, a person of color's yep. voice. And so I wonder, even for you as a white person, but as a queer person, and as a gay man, how you think about your voice in terms of that and then how you execute on the show. Sure. Um, I don't know how much of the fact that I just don't get excited by uh, romantic comedies is a function of me being queer and just being tired of heterosexuals complaining about their little foibles uh, to get, you know, universal cultural acceptance, um, uh, you know, little hiccups along the way. And how much of it is just me, and, and I don't know. I don't know. When the show started, uh, we had Trey Graham on the show with us. Uh, that meant there were two white, middle-aged gay men. Uh, and uh, now, I, I, every time I bring this up, Linda is, is quick to push back and say, yeah, but you're so different. Like, Trey is a very uh, erudite, uh, opera-loving, uh, German leader kind of, you know, guy. And I am none of that thing. I'm a, I'm a comic book queer uh so, so uh, but is that a type by the way a comic book queer yep uh-huh <laughs> there is even a podcast of the name okay comic book yes it goes it is part of my uh cultural aesthetic uh to come at it from a perspective and kind of point out when something is uh just egregiously heterosexual <laughs> and uh and normative and boringly basic uh, and straight mm-hmm. but you know it's it's a part of my cultural criticism it isn't it doesn't dominate it uh there was a couple times when i might have uh, appreciated the aesthetics of the male body a little too often on the show and then we might have had to walk me back a little bit <laughs> some of that stuff landed up on the uh, cutting room floor but uh yeah sure i mean this is it's just uh i i like how, um, in any given show, it's very likely that Stephen Thompson will be the sole white straight dude in the room while other voices are being heard mm-hmm. over his. Mm-hmm. It's good. And there is a thing, too, about the show's sort of like the way the show presents itself, which is like a very safe, easy, reliable format and formula that would be appealing to a wide number of people, some of whom may not identify specifically as your kind of people or people that would think X, Y, Z about the queer community. And then the show kind of functioning as a Trojan horse sure. for, for some of those ideas. Even for me, listening to an episode you guys did about the Paddington films. Sure. And you, I think, noted in one of those, uh, in, in that discussion, the queerness of Paddington yep. in a way that I had not given one thought about it at all. And in the opening minutes of the first Paddington film, we get jokes about imperialism and immigration. Yeah. And there is a thin line. I don't want to overstate it, but there is a queer component to this storyline. There is a queer tone here, not just because it's Ben Wishaw, not just because it's some cross-dressing. <laughs> there's a there's a outsider otherness that it's it's kind of playing with in a real way and that is maintained even though it's done in different ways throughout and Hugh Grant of course plays into some of that as well and then just like even examining it from that perspective was was so helpful and and kind of beautiful for me to be able to think about things that way so I I wonder if you ever think about like the it's so it's it feels so reductive or or hopefully not condescending but just like the responsibility or like the educational idea of like oh there might be some straights out there that fully don't know why this is messed up why this might be offensive why this is great why this is actually coded in this way whatever the case may be yeah i mean i i don't know because if you think of the stereotypical straight dude he is not represented by stephen thompson stephen thompson is not a stereotypical straight dude he is in his own words a soy boy and proud of it uh so uh yeah he's he's just incredibly sensitive and uh and you know in a way that i think uh straight dudes like him should kind of aspire to be yeah i mean it's a thing i think about especially if they're uh, if I meet a kid at a, a meet and greet and there's and there's 
you know, they go out of their way to say something nice about uh, being able to hear a voice like mine. Mm-hmm. That's that's great. Yeah, I, I, but it's not a, a it's not something that's top of mind in any way. Yeah, it seems very matter of fact for you too. I don't get the sense of like there are some people that uh, want to take on that sort of burden or that sort of weight of representation or having a particular kind of voice in the discourse and you seem to be pretty matter of fact of all the different parts of your identity yeah i guess i mean again i'm a critic in the grand scheme of things i don't matter the the thing i'm critiquing does Mm -hmm. so uh yeah so i you know i I, there's certain critics i love to read uh or listen to but ultimately if the show becomes about us uh the show is failing the show Mm -hmm. is about the thing we're talking about that's my uh I'll, i'll go to my grave with that conviction what to you makes like a and maybe this is like 101 stuff that you can explain to me and then to the listener, but like, like the difference between like good critique and bad critique in the sense of like, if someone's writing a review of a movie, of a television show, of somebody's album, what to you are like salient points in it in terms of approach, even for you personally, that you would find to be the most interesting to read versus the most boring to read? Right. Uh, uh, pans, like uh, very acidic takedowns, are the easiest thing in the world to write, and therefore they're boring. Even when they're fun, they are lazy. The way the world works is 10% of everything is great, 10% of everything is terrible. Most things are somewhere in the middle, and that's the stuff that tops the right about. It's easy to write a rave, it's easy to write a pan, to kind of sift through the things and say, is this, and it's not just like consumer you know, journalism, like, like uh, is it worth your time, is it worth your afternoon? It's you're trying to figure out what did they intend to do did they accomplish it? And is it worth doing in the first place? That's kind of the questions you ask yourself whenever. And for me, some of the reviews I write, especially when I'm like uh, recapping Game of Thrones, it is almost as much about me being entertained as entertaining uh, others, right? So I need to make, I've written so many movie reviews, so many television reviews over the years, and it, I, I just need to keep myself awake. And, and I just need to insert in there some jokes, humor, whatever you want to call it, uh, wordplay, something that is my, I had a colleague, uh, Dominic Pepitola, who uh, writes uh, in, in Minnesota. He, he basically calls it like scattering gold coins through your prose so that you're, you're kind of keeping people pulled along so that every so often they hit something that, that stands out mm-hmm. enough to make them keep going. Because, uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, people want to know, did, did you like Emma? And I can say, yeah, I liked Emma, fine, but you know, here's the stuff that uh, kind of left me cold, and here's when I started dozing off, and here's, you know, like, ultimately you're giving everybody a thumbs up and thumbs down, but you're trying to get them to keep reading, or, or in the case of podcast, keep listening after they get to know what you thought of it. Because ultimately, um, that's, that's what you're offering. It's not just go see it, but here's some things to think about before, during, and after. And this may be the old man McGillicuddy question of this interview, Uh but in terms of the way social media has affected a lot of this stuff, and and not even just like the everyone's a critic thing, but there does seem to be truly a social aspect now around criticism that Mm -hmm. is fun for people to engage in, like non-toxically too, not even just like people being mean to Kelly Marie Tran on Twitter or like bullying, but even like something like Letterboxd, like a platform fully devoted to people's reviews. A lot of them very funny or artfully done and people are able to comment on that stuff. What do you think that does to like mainstream criticism? Does it cheapen it? Mainstream criticism being like the stuff that people like professionals like such as yourself are paid to do and do for a living. Right. Look, look, I mean, anybody can do reviews. Doing reviews is fun. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I had a, a large collection of VHS, VHS tapes, and I wrote up a little catalog uh, for, in case anybody wanted to borrow it, there would be a catalog uh, worth many reviews of each movie, all 500 of them. There's no reason, there is no reason in the world why we should say only we can discuss this and you cannot. Um, you know, in comics and, and a lot of different nerd culture stuff, the dynamic used to be we're up here, the creators are up here on the mountain, and then uh, we p- pass down the tablets down to you, and so you, at the bottom, at the base of the mountain, kind of pick over the scraps. This is the content that we dictate. And now with things like fan fiction, and even cosplay, and, you know, conventions, there's a conversation going on, which is much more interesting. And so... Critics are not the only ones who can speak back to... Uh, and we're not speaking to the creators, by the way. Uh, mm. That is a hugely important thing. I don't care what the creator thinks they made. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk about what you made. And whether or not you know 
what you were doing or why you did it. This, mm. this is what you put out in the world, so we're going to address that. We're going to discuss that. And this is not so that it gets back to you, and you can kind of say, well, this is not what I intended, this is not what I meant, I don't care. And that's the thing that social media allows. You can, somebody can tag a critic and a, and a creator and hope that there's some kind of, what, back and forth on that? I don't, mm. I, it's the last thing I do. When I, when I put out my book, the last thing I'm ever going to do is go on Goodreads. My job is done. Mm. I put something out in the world, it's now it, it is in the world's hands to do with as they with, and I am not going to second guess or or jump into a conversation and say, well, actually, it's not my job. No, it's not the critic's job. That's either. nice that it's not hard for you to disengage with that stuff. Oh, it's the most important thing, and yeah. it's the only way to stay healthy, mentally healthy, anyway. I'm I'm wondering too, just thinking about the totality of your work, not even on the podcast, but also in the books that you're reading or writing, rather. How you think about, like, I don't even know the words for this, kind of like the raw thing of what you're putting out into the world, because this is so fun. Mm-hmm. What you get to do, what you get paid to do yep. on a regular basis with people that you enjoy working with, but also probably really like a lot in real life and have decent friendships with yep. a lot in, in life. You get to have <laughs> discourse about things that most of us really enjoy and have, like, the privilege to enjoy. And there is such a um, wonderful thing about commodifying that frivolity. And like, wouldn't it be nice if someone could just like pay us for sitting around and doing what we're doing already? Yeah. What do you think about that? Like the, the, the privilege of being able to do this stuff and to think deeply about what Batman meant yeah. in the 1930s versus the 2000s. I mean, this is the thing. I, I am only too aware that this is my dream job, the thing I've wanted to do since I was a kid. Not create stuff but to like write and think and then critique uh that's that's kind of uh and write about uh that critique i feel i'm still in the honeymoon period at npr because i'm now there full time and for hmm, i'm gonna say 18 years i had a nine to five uh kind of soul-crushing job as a pr flack all during that time i was doing stuff that i loved uh, at nights and weekends wrote both books at night and uh, on weekends uh while going to this job I really hated. And when the opportunity got to go to NPR full time, I just, you know, if I'm sitting at my desk and I'm um, watching a screener of something, I just feel like this is, this is, this is what I wanted to do all my life. This is exactly it. Yes. Uh, With these people at this organization, it's just, um, I'm only too aware how lucky I am. And, And yeah, there was some hard work and there was certainly a really terrible job that had to get me here but uh but yeah it's uh it's i i am very aware of how of how great this is yeah it's fun to see you by the way emotionally reflective about this yeah. too <laughs> you know what i mean because it's like i i don't know if you would list as one of your top 10 qualities is like yeah glenn's emotional <laughs> no 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 it wouldn't i mean I'm but broken. there is like such a like tangible gratitude to the way you're talking about right this stuff Be- because you know again it's logical like mm-hmm. you work this hard for this long and you get to do this thing you've always wanted to do okay this is this is the way it tr- this is how stories work mm-hmm. this is this is this is the thing uh that gets you to the uh, to the end right is is this hard work followed by reward mm-hmm. uh is is and the fact that it, you have to keep you know we're, we're changing up the show we're challenging ourselves un- new mm-hmm. we're taking this thing that we love and we're uh knocking it apart and, and seeing how it works and there's going to be some logistical hiccups and we're going to try to figure out how to how to do this thing day to day but it is going to be great it's going to be fun no matter what we do glenn weldon i love your nerdy voice oh, hey, it's man. one that's been a comfort to me for many years even Aww. predating our relationship and friendship uh-huh I would describe it as professorial. Oh, hey, there as you well. go. Okay, yeah. all right, I'll take that. A professor that with a slight spice of sass. On top. <laughs> a professor that you do not want to cross. Professor sass. But if he's on your good side or you're on his good side, that's good news. Thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. Glenn Weldon has a nerdy voice, and you can hear that voice on Pop Culture Happy Hour wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know where you get your podcasts, but I do know now. You have the time to listen to them. Inside Voices is produced by me and Steve Allman. Our theme music is by Pam Autori. And I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. Thanks for spending time with us today on Inside Voices. That was a HeadGum Podcast.